Welcome to Better in Real Life, a podcast from the Trestle Collective. I'm your host, Jonathan McGinty, and in this series, I like to have conversations with good folks doing some interesting, pretty cool things. After last week's unforeseen hiatus, we're back this week to catch up with my buddy, Mike Hammetree, the Vice President of External Operations for the Tennessee Golf Foundation. Mike's a veteran of the golf industry, compiling extensive experience on both the event side and the retail side. But before we get into that, we do have a pressing topic to tackle, that of famed Tri-Cities quick service restaurant, Pals. It's a giant hot dog and a giant hamburger, and it's both of them. And they're, they're there. Um, and they're, they're most of the time they're fiberglass. In fact, 99% of the time they're fiberglass and they're put onto the building and on the center block building. And it's no big deal until they decided to open a store in the new, uh, this new area in Johnson city that had been developed and had all these zoning restrictions and what building codes, et cetera. And they had to make the things out of brick. The whole building out of brick, including the hot dog and the hamburger had to be carved out of brick and the French fries and the, the, the drink, like it's the whole deal. Um, that one was expensive. It, it's, but it, they've made it all back. That's the most popular location. So it, it, it's a big thing. Like, like people love it's it. It's a thing. It's a thing. People listen every day, starting from pretty much 11 a.m. until 1.30, the line doesn't matter what location all across Northeast Tennessee, the line is backed up into the street. I have seen it where they have had to bring um, police officers out to direct traffic to keep it moving. Doesn't matter. I mean, there's, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them all across the Tri-Cities and people just beat down the door. And there's something called the the Saucy, is that right? You are correct. It is a uh, burger dipped in some sort of ketchup based thing <laughs> it is messy <laughs> and then it put on a bun and then you eat it and i mean it's kind of like it's like a it's like a sloppy joe but like combined like it's still in burger form not in sloppy form it's really Are, special. would you consider yourself a fan of it no no i mean i mean i mean pals not necessarily no. the no, oh. no yeah no okay. no it's not good <laughs> like, i mean just in the story like it's just your basic frozen I'm sure they say it's not frozen, but it's just a, it's just the same Cisco cheeseburger. Everybody else gets no big deal. They put sugar on the French fries. That's I'm serious. Like, I don't know what's going on there. Um, and, and they price it in a way, like instead of 99 cents, it's like 29 cents. So you think, Oh man, I'm getting a deal. No, (laughs) it's not good. (laughs) Plenty of times I've gone through the line of pals and next thing I know it was $12. You're like, what the hell just happened here? (laughs) Now I've known Mike for nearly 10 years now, initially meeting him when he was first a client of mine at a previous job. He spent his entire professional life working in sports, specifically in the golf industry. It's not a journey he initially envisioned, but thanks to some good, bad advice from a college advisor, he was able to get on his way. I never in a million years thought I would be where I am. Um, Nowhere close, like this was not a designed kind of track for me. I knew that, um, I knew when, once I got to college, I knew I wanted to work in, in golf in some capacity. Um, I didn't know what that would be though. Um, I was still pretty committed that I could play a professional sport. I was supposed to be a professional baseball player, but you know, my left knee had other ideas. 
Um, so like going to college to learn a skill or a trade was not ever really something on, on my agenda. Um, I was a smart kid, you know, so, yeah. but uh, it wasn't like I was, you know, destined for greatness by going to Harvard or anything like that. Um, I just went to college because it was the next thing to do. I, I, I didn't pick a major for the first two years. And then finally they were like, you have to decide on something. You've got to be one thing or the other. Yeah, fine. And uh, they told me about commercial recreation. I said, well, what is that? Because I know what recreation is. And that sounds like a lot of fun. What's commercial side of it? And they're like, oh, that's how you make money. And I went, well, cool. Sign me up. Easy. Uh, yeah. They were very wrong about that. <laughs> I don't know anybody who makes a lot of money in commercial recreation. Uh, but it is a way to pay the bills. Um, yeah. So I, I did that. And then really kind of how I got into golf was um, I graduated at a weird time, uh, 2005, when the economy was in a weird place and it was on the verge of collapsing, right? It wasn't there yet, but it was on the verge of it. And you know, the job market just wasn't great. It especially wasn't great for someone who with a commercial recreation degree. Um, it was at that point that we were flooding everybody going to college, um, you know, whether you could tie your shoes or not. And, and so the, just the market was flooded with people trying to, trying to get a job. And I had taught a class or not taught a class. I had, I had uh, my senior year, we had a, a class where we all had to get up and teach the class one day, you know, on, on some sort of topic. And the professor I had um, for that class, when I got up to do it, she, she caught me coming out and said, I don't know what your plans are, but I think you should be a professor. I think you should be an educator. I was like, oh, sure. I got nothing else cool. to do. This sounds like a great idea. <laughs> um, so I, that was what I went back to grad school for was I went back to get my master's. And, and the idea was that I would finish that, go directly to get my PhD, and then I would lecture somewhere. Um, I, in fact, had initial plans to go to Athens, to the University of Georgia for my PhD. Uh, right. We, our paths would have crossed one way or the other. But I was, I was kind of, this relationship would just, just would have started right, a bit earlier. That's all. It was, it was exactly. Um, but then funnily enough, my first year of grad school, the guy that, that I was kind of modeling my what I thought was going to be my career, he had done the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um he, he became my advisor and I, and he asked me one day, he said, what, what are you, what are you planning on doing? I said, well, I was going to kind of follow your lead. And he goes, I've never been more miserable in my life. <laughs> so <Cool>. what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, he goes, uh, I teach six classes a semester, four of which are undergraduates who have absolutely no interest in doing, learning this stuff. He says that's mind numbingly awful. Um, and then the next thing, all I have to do, uh, all they care about here is they want me to write and write and write and get published and because that's all they care about. And I hate that. I don't have any time for my family. Um, $250,000 in debt from getting my PhD. Life sucks. Don't be me. You're like, cool. I mean, <laughs> on, some, okay. on some level, that's what an advisor should do, right? Right. No, he did his job. He did his job. But, oh, my God. <laughs> so you know all right fine um all the while while i was while i was in grad school and, it, and grad school was <clears throat> shockingly i i barely got into grad school like the only reason i got in is because my professor i went to the exact same school i went to my undergrad and my professors were like yeah yeah, yeah you'll be you'll be fine i on paper would never have gotten in 
but grad school was was great for me like i really latched on it was a different way to learn a different way to educate and just kind of i was into it and uh so luckily it wasn't a huge struggle i guess for me Mm -hmm. and so i had a lot of free time and i built my whole schedule around where i had my pretty much from 8 a.m to 5 p.m i had a two-hour graduate assistantship every day from eight to 10 and that was it and then from 10 o'clock until six i had all the time in the world so i had always played golf and i had almost played golf at in college at uncg and then decided not to um and then i thought you know i could i could probably do this there were a couple of mini tours running around between greensboro to charlotte i thought sure i'll give this a shot I did. And I wasn't bad. I made a little bit of money. I didn't make a ton, but I made enough to, to feel like, yeah, I could, there, there might be something here. I was wrong about that too. Uh, very wrong, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> um, but so I spent, I spent basically the next four years, even the two years after grad school, trying to, trying to make it on mini tours and play in any event I could afford. I didn't have a backer, so I was doing it all on my own. So, you know, I took my terrible, you know, after getting 40 grand in the hole from under, from graduate school, I took a job paying $24,000 a year. Sweet. Uh, (laughs) that, you know, half of it went to paying student loans. The other half went to, to trying to play professional golf. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a, a complete and absolute disaster, uh, abject failure in, in every way, except for the people you meet. And, I was fortunate to meet the guys at, at scratch through just, I needed some equipment and they were willing to send me some and then fate kind of stepped in and that's, that's, that's how it happened. I have been in golf ever since. So my complete failure as a professional player led me to a job working on the PGA tour in a year after I decided to hang it up. Mike worked in a variety of capacities for a startup club company called Scratch Golf, including some time as an equipment representative who traveled along with the PGA Tour from tournament to tournament. And when I say traveled, I mean he drove a truck hauling a massive trailer from one corner of the country to another. We may have put the cart before the horse in getting out onto the, onto the PGA Tour. Um, and again, lessons learned, right? That's what that's, that's reduced. But when you're a small business and you've got, uh, you know, a golden opportunity, you got to strike while the iron's hot, right? No sure. pun intended. Uh, wish I hadn't said that. Um, <laughs> but we took a chance and, you know, we, we, we bought a, a kind of an outdated used equipment van trailer truck situation that we could drive across the country from PJ tour event, to PJ tour event. Um, and with neither of us really knowing how to do that or how, what to do, where to go, what to say, who to call, nothing, I mean, no experience whatsoever, um, other than having been players at some point. And um, I spent 308 days on the road my first year. Good uh, Lord. Mostly behind the wheel of a Dodge Ram 3500 Cummings diesel, <laughs> towing a 16,000 pound trailer illegally. <laughs> I might add <laughs> uh, <laughs> supposed to stop at way stations when you're that heavy and nah. not so much, <laughs> not so much. I could have sworn it said 10,000 on it. So <laughs> that was the limit, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And so you spend a lot of time on the road. I, I knew every Hampton Inn between uh, every corner of the country. Um, I saw a lot of stuff, but yeah, I mean, you know, I had a PO box for four years, not an address. 
Right. It's a weird, it's a weird life. And I saw it too. Like it was, it's the perfect gig. If you're like, I was 25, right. No kids, not married, no responsibilities whatsoever. It's perfect. Um, I, I, looking back on it now, like the guys that were, you know, my age now, you know, in in their forties doing it out there then, I mean, they were all divorced. Their kids hated them. You just, you're just constantly traveling. You're just constantly traveling. Um, and it wears on you, wears on you. And the worst part, I think the, the saddest thing for me was that yeah, they'd kind of all give me a little bit of grief, but they, you know, I, every town we went to, I'd be like, oh, let's, let's check this place out. Let's go here. Let's go there. And I'm like, Dude, I'm just going to the Applebee's. <laughs> what? Why? We're in one of the greatest cities in America. You're going to go to the, you're going to go, you can go to that anywhere. Yeah. There's value in consistency. <laughs> that's awful man <laughs> what are you doing you're, you're you're 45 your ex-wife hates you your new girlfriend hates you your kids hate you and you're eating at an applebee's <laughs> what else can i do i but i mean that has to 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 your point earlier about playing or you know going out and all the, those mini tours mm-hmm. You probably made a ton of connections though, doing all of that and met people Tons. you wouldn't have met who have been able Tons. to help you out. I mean, that's how we got connected. Tons. I mean, I, I, I use this line at least once a week now, even and more so now in my current job. Um, the amount of people that are in my Rolodex, if not for the game of golf, there's no chance I'd ever met them. Right. And I've been an insurance salesman. I wouldn't know any of the people I know, I wouldn't have any of the friends I have. Uh, there's, it just wouldn't have happened, but because I took a risk on a, something I was passionate about now, a laundry list of Grammy winners, ex athletes, hall of famers, you know, that, that's pretty cool. You know? Yeah. Podcast yeah. hosts like you. Well, you know, <laughs> up and coming as, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and I don't want you to, name names because i don't want to i don't want to go down down that road but one of the things that <laughs> you're already laughing as i said yeah. question, aren't you yeah. but one of the things that has that has interested me from going to the, like to the pj merchandise show or working with golf clients is there seems to be this ecosystem of folks who are quote unquote consultants and they hop from consultancy to consultancy without really doing a whole heck of a lot yeah <laughs> and and yeah. you and I have talked yeah. about and that was this. always the gig I was trying to figure out. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I, we would always have these conversations. How do we do that? But like, do it ethically. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. I think number one, there are, this is a weird business. It's especially on the, the equipment, the hard goods side, soft goods side. Once you're in, it's really hard to get out. Right. It's really hard to get in, but it's even harder to get out. I've tried for years to, to get out of there um, just because it is a cutthroat miserable way to 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 go through it um well you're but yeah they're always selling everybody's recycled you're always selling everybody's recycled whoever had a great idea at company a now no longer does that's okay company b will take them they'll go over there you know and there's always a oh well i wanted to do it this way fit into that there's a clash of egos and it's whatever Uh, you know if you're just not good at something, you're just not good at something. Um, but it's, there's always the, the golf business is a really interesting business. I have found that everybody always has this, the next best idea. And, mm-hmm. and the PGA show for years was always the best example of that. Of I have a great idea. I made some money as a, you know, uh, as a, a PA, 
Um, I'm looking to waste it. I might as well start a golf equipment business or a golf, you know, novelty business or a clothing business or something dumb um, that unless you're coming in with millions of dollars in the marketing coffers, you are wasting your time. Right. Like if you're, if you have the money to support, to start a PXG, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. If you have, and even I guarantee you, Bob would even say today, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, because no one, no one talks about the, the, what you have to do to market. I mean, that's, that's how all these folks have success. I mean, it's, it's yes. Your Titleist and your Callaways are great product. What have you have a hundred million dollar marketing budget. I mean, you walk, you walk to their booths at the PGA merchandise show and you're in, I mean, you're kind of immersed in an entirely new world. It's, it's not a booth. And if you're starting, no. you're in a booth, like you've got like a card table. You got, you got, and you, how can you compete? Astronomical amount of money for it that you probably can't make back that week. Right. That's the thing. The, the margins in this business, when you really start, I mean, the margins on hard goods alone are terrible. And especially as a small startup, like it costs way too much to get the tooling made. It doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a club or if it's a, you know, a divot tool, whatever it is, the, the cost, the startup costs on it are outrageous and it takes you forever to make that back. And most of the time they just can't, they can't do that. So they, they spend a million dollars to create the product and then they turn around and realize I can only sell this product for $10. I'm going to have to sell a hundred thousand of these before I even come anywhere close to be able, and how am I going to sell a hundred thousand of these? Well, I need to market it. Well, do you have any money left? No. <laughs> wow. <Well, I'll lie. laughs> Great. So then you yeah. go to the PGA show and you hope to convince somebody to either buy it. Right. Or... Buy a hundred thousand of these, please. And can you pay in cash? <laughs> as fast as you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I can't. It's, it's I mean, backwards. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. Before we get back to the podcast, I wanted to take a moment and thank you, our listener, for joining us. Better in Real Life has been a blast to do, and it's just one of a series of podcasts our team at Trestle Collective has lined up. While we're going to take a short hiatus on this particular podcast, I'd love to tell you about two fun programs we've got lined up to debut in the next few weeks. You can get your 90s fix with Joe Van Hoos and Ashley Shepard, who are going to head down the musical memory lane discussing the discography of Counting Crows. And I'm going to be joined by my friend, Lindsay Rana Hosseini, in a limited-run podcast focusing on the wonderfully awful and seasonally festive world of Hallmark Christmas movies. Now let's get back to our conversation with Mike as he walks us through the work he does now with the Tennessee Golf Foundation. When I, when I officially got out of Chase 54 and officially got out of the retail business that is golf, I was desperate to do anything else and was adamant. I was not going to stay in the golf world. I've had enough. Like you guys won, you beat me. I'm done. Um, and I never even thought about using golf as a fundraising platform and how it could help uh, people. Most people don't know golf is the single greatest fundraising tool there is today. More money is raised through golf than anything else. Mm-hmm. Not, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Charity golf tournaments, golf auctions, whatever. They're just, I mean, big time. And um, so when I got the chance, uh, I almost said no. And I tried to say no a hundred times to these people. Um, but when I went for, went to interview with the, the people at Ballot Health at that time, Mountain States Health, about they wanted to make their 
children's hospital tournament. They wanted to put it on TV. I, I told them they were crazy. He's like, if you're, if you're raising $700,000 today, why do you want to spend a million dollars to, to lose 300 grand on it? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, but they were adamant and they, uh, they really wanted to do it. And, and initially, again, I, I thought I'd go up there for six months to a year, maybe just till somebody else came calling and was like, Hey, move to California and be this, be that, you know, again, not expecting anything. Instead, stuck around for five years and raised a little over $5 million for, for sick kids. Right. And uh, you want to talk about something that makes you feel a lot better. It's pretty easy to get out of bed every day. Yeah. Pretty easy yeah. to go to the golf course. It's pretty easy to, to, to live a, live a, live and earn, make a living in, in golf when instead of begging people to buy a $20 product, um, you just ask them to help, help keep kids from getting cancer or, you know, from being addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. That's easy. <laughs> that's, easy. <laughs> that's a nice life change right there. So mm-hmm. you, now are you, and, and forgive me for that, cause I, I get yep. the chronology mixed up. Are you still, I, I know you're with the, the foundation now, but are you still overseeing the, working with the, the hospitals event? I know COVID they, they wreak havoc. COVID, COVID killed it. Um, they're having all kinds of problems as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they wanted to bring the tournament back in 21, but it just wasn't the right time. Um, if it returns in 22, uh, they have asked that uh, my team at the foundation that, that if we could run it, um, <clears throat> if it comes back, if it, you know, it may not. You're right. Um, it was, it was the thing about that event was that it was a very expensive event and it made a lot of money, but you could, for the net in all honesty up there, you could probably just make a few phone calls. Right, right. It's the same amount of work. Well, and you you grew it because you also brought. Didn't you bring a long drive into it? Yep, yep. I fulfilled the. Please put this on TV request. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, professional long drive was something I had always been around. It was how I got started. Really, I did an internship in college with uh, Art Sellingers at the time, Long Drivers of America, and so I'd always just kind of been around that world. And when Golf Channel bought it. I, I, they said they were looking for places to host one. And without permission, I said, I'll take one. <laughs> and uh, it worked out, <laughs> but yeah. Um, a lot of people, a lot of people saw a nice longer children's hospital on TV because of that. So we accomplished the mission there. Well, and you, and you turned it into a much more comprehensive sort of hospitality experience too. I yeah. feel like, I mean, it already, I don't want to be little what it was before, but you, you yeah. kind of took it to like a different level in terms of there being, events it was like a, it was like a week-long thing it was what you were telling yeah, me it, it went from a it went from just a kind of a glorified charity tournament on steroids to a, a what what feels like a tour event mm-hmm. um you know we were asking our sponsors to pay a lot of money 25 50 grand to come in and do these things we had to give them something so we did multiple concerts we did uh, food tastings. We did all kinds of, you know, with, by adding the lawn drive, we had a kind of a hospitality suite esque feel to it. So, I mean, there was, the golf became kind of secondary. You know, yeah. yeah. We're getting to play golf today with a PGA tour player. But that's really neat. But all this other stuff is what we're really here for. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I mean, again, you, you spend a good bit of money to do those kinds of things, but you make so much more. Right. Right. Well, and I, I think people, I remember seeing a Ted talk about that, that people don't understand or appreciate. It's all about scale. If you're going to spend, mm-hmm. I'm making up a number, right. $500,000 to do something. Yeah. 
you ought to understand that $500,000 could bring in 2 million and then you've made 1.5. And that's something you can't do by trying to cobble together a bunch of people to give you stuff for free. You can't call around to kind of go against what I said earlier. You can't call around and and probably just make a few phone calls and raise 2 million. You can probably raise 500 grand that way. But if you really want to get to doing something big, you got to spend a little bit of, a little bit of cash to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, well, tell me about your work at the the, the foundation. I know y'all have a, a, a corn fairy tour event. Yep. Is that right? So yeah, so I got brought here to to run that primarily for the foundation. That's that's probably what I spend eighty percent of my time on these days. Um, so the Tennessee Golf Foundation took over these the what was the National Golf Open, um, and is now called the Simmons Bank Open. Um, the tour essentially treats it like a brand new event just because it's a new host organization, new facility that we're at, all those things. You know, the kind of the tour's message to us was, hey, look, you're Nashville. You, sh- you should have a PGA Tour event, not a corn fairy event. Mm-hmm. But as of yet, it doesn't seem like the town would support it. doesn't seem like the folks that are going to come out. doesn't seem like the corporate dollars are there. So prove us wrong for the next few years and maybe, maybe we'll bring one okay fine uh <laughs> so um you know when when uh my boss hired me i said look just promise me one thing like just don't tell me no i'm gonna uh, you 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 found me because nobody else ever told me no and when i came up with a crazy idea they said let's do it and it and it worked i might come up with a crazy idea it might not work but a lot of times it does so if you're willing to spend the spend the money to try to make double that let's go and we have been very fortunate this last year to have uh a record revenue year for any first year event um i'll find out in a couple of months if it was the highest revenue for any corn fairy event this year which would be great um but we, we just completely transformed it and so now it's a lot of fun to go around town and tell people what i do and they go oh man i went and it was awesome i didn't even you know that was such a cool thing about you know before you couldn't hardly find anybody that had gone. It's just right. a different, different perspective on different. And not that, not that the group running it before ran it poorly. It just that <clears throat> they were a for-profit group were a nonprofit sure. group. And the difference in those two things is dramatic, right? You know, they need to, they need, they've got salaries to pay and mm-hmm. need to try to make as much money as possible and keep that. So again, what is it? doesn't make sense for them to go drop, a million dollars of money they don't have to hopefully turn around and make 1.1. 1. 1. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, for me, <clears throat> I kind of have to do that. <laughs> right. We we have to get Non-profit. to that point. I have to, <laughs> right. I have to spend that money. So I got to spend it one way or the other. Well, and and I would imagine oh. that the fact that Nashville is growing like crazy probably yeah. helped y'all as well. Big time. I mean, Big time. And it's and it. And everybody's, I mean, I feel like everybody I know is moving there or going there on like trips and everything. I mean, it's, yes. it's <laughs> yeah. tell us about the NFL draft experience. <laughs> that was great for the city. Like it really was. But it kind of opened the floodgates a little bit, I think. <laughs> a, um, lot of, a lot of people coming now. Better in Real Life is a production of Trestle Collective. It's hosted by me, Jonathan McGinty, with original music and editing by Joe Van Hoos. For more, visit TrestleCollective.com, and be sure to let us know what you think of the show.